Hello and welcome to the Business Class Lounge, the podcast where I interview marketing leaders and executives to understand how they really think about leadership, management, finance, and more. This is a podcast from Searchpilot. My name is Will Critchlow. Today, I'm very much looking forward to speaking to Jess Schultz, who is the group CMO at Ringier. Jess has one of the most complicated CMO jobs I know of, with responsibilities spanning verticals, brands, and markets. I'll let her describe it because I don't even know the full extent of it all. She has an extremely strong SEO background and has worked her way up to the group leadership level in a large organization. I've learned a lot from her writing and conference talks on SEO, but I've never had the chance to quiz her on leadership and management topics. This podcast is all about speaking to people who've done the kinds of things she has. So without further ado, let's get started. Hi, Jess. Thank you for joining me today. I wanted you to do the first intro of what your company actually does in its entirety. I mean, maybe not all of it, but like you have one of the more complicated jobs of anybody I'm speaking to. So tell us a bit about the portfolio of things under your remit. So under my remit, we've got three main units. We've got the marketplaces unit, which has all of our classifieds and e-commerce brands. And I primarily focus on the classified brands. So you're thinking property portals or horizontal classifieds, job portals, car trading, that sort of stuff. Then we've got our media unit and media unit focuses on obviously publications. So you've got your general news, you've got lifestyle media, women's media, business media, sports media, whatever it might be. And then we've got our technology unit, which is vast and diverse, but essentially services the needs of the other two units is the intent. And this is across dozens and dozens of countries and languages and markets. Yeah. So we're active in Europe, Africa, and Asia. I can't name all of the countries offhand. It would probably take me too long. Same with the languages. But I speak a little bit of very random languages in very specific things. So if you ask me something about Romanian property portals in Romanian, I've got you covered. Talk to me about anything else in Romanian, say hello to me, I'm done. But ask me to translate two-bedroom apartment in Bucharest, I got you covered. That is the most niche party trick I've ever heard. So uh, yeah, I think um, I love it. This is probably the bit that I I really want to drill into with you. We've got a load of areas that I'm kind of curious about, but just the complexity of what you're managing here when you're thinking about, presumably, brand, performance marketing, all the way down into the details of the nuts and bolts. I mean, I know that you know, you're an expert in areas of particularly of SEO, you can get all the way down into the channels, but I, I guess you don't have time for that very often. So how do you actually think about spending your time and who reports to you, how you structure your week? How do you manage this kind of complexity? It's changed a lot over the years. So I've come up with this company. I've been working for Ringe for almost 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And I started very much at the bottom of the international team. I was a uh, I don't even remember my official title. I was like an SEO, SEM expert. And Mm -hmm. then... Right in the channel. Yeah, right deep in the channel, doing SEO audit level in the channel. And over the years, you know, I've just come up through the ranks and now become the group CMO. And as we've grown and evolved, the businesses have also grown and evolved. We've gone through multiple joint ventures, acquisitions, as any corporate company does in such a time. So... What we are looking at now is very different to even what we were looking at a year ago or two years ago. So 
constantly going through these restructures and reshaping to meet the current needs of the businesses as the businesses grow and develop as well. So it's always interesting. A lot of my day-to-day is just managing, okay, now we're restructuring this to this and got to change this culture to this and communicate to the organization. Okay, no, actually, now you talk to this person for that topic because we've shifted. Mm-hmm. Do they feel like one team, like the, the whole of this organization under you, marketing across your three pillars, across your different brands, all these kind of things? Do they talk to each other? Do, do they feel like they have a sense of being part of a group collective? Or are you saying, okay, no, I need to deal with the marketing team in Romania and that's a team and they think of themselves as, as a kind of delineated unit? Depends on who you're speaking to. I would love the answer to be they all feel like they're one of part big extended family. (laughs) The reality is it depends. So our goal is to ensure that they are communicating with one another, that they're sharing expertise, they know one another exists. So we've got um, regular monthly meetings where we say, okay, all of the heads of audience development on the media side or all of the heads of marketing on the classified side for a particular vertical. We're going to get you all together and we're going to choose a topic and we're going to talk about that topic really openly because we are part of one company and we don't have to worry about trade secrets. Right. But this is still very new, like getting those contacts, getting the right people, getting them all on a call at the same time to a point where they want to keep coming back month for month because they're getting value out of it. That in and of itself is a challenge because you can't just be talking about anything they could read on the internet or anything they could do in their own time. You have to have these meetings to a point where the value exceeds the time in the calendar because you are talking about a company CMO level or, or head of level or VP level. It's not that they have a lot of time around. So to say, come and collaborate with us, it's a lot and you need to respect that. Yeah, the the value proposition has to be there and and the prep work for something like that to actually be able to bring value, whoever's leading it and the participants bringing value. Yeah, I can imagine that that's quite a challenge. And forgive me, we're going to go up and down the kind of level of abstractions in this conversation because one of the things I love doing is just drilling into the, in some senses, silly tactical details as well. So when your teams are communicating and collaborating, how are they doing that? Are Are you in Slack, Microsoft Teams? Are you an email outfit? How do your teams work? I'm very happy to say that we are not (laughs) email. That would just personally be a failure. We are Slack. (laughs) Yep. So we have international Slack where all of our team members are together. We have their dedicated channels. But honestly, I think because it is such a large group, people are a little bit hesitant. Those Mm. are more a place where we will do announcements. So we'll share articles that we find interesting. But Unless someone has a really burning question that they need an answer for. It's broadcasts and emergencies. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. The actual conversations have been happening because of the work that two of my team members have been putting in, building up one-on-one relationships with the heads of marketing, heads of audience development, each brand. So they have one-on-ones with them, ideally once a month. They have those exchanges, understand deeply what the pain points are, look where we have common shared pain points. And then we know, okay, so that's what we can do a team meeting on because we know we can see you're struggling with a similar challenge. At least three of you will want to talk about this. And so we kind of pull on this grassroots approach to understanding what their actual problems are. But that requires 
a lot of time and effort on our part. So those two team members, they don't do a lot of actual traditional what would see as work. You know, they're not sitting there <laughs> and they're not in the tool doing the thing. They no. are talking to the people about what are your problems and really they're relationship builders, mm-hmm. first and foremost. So we can identify what are things that matter from a global perspective that we can then help the brands on. Because a few years ago, when we didn't have these positions in place where we weren't tied closely into the brands and the units, it was very much, we're going to think about what we think you need or what we see from your data you need and come to you with a solution. And the brands just went, no, thank you. Too busy today. Yeah. Talk to us in six months. So that could be interesting, but we don't have any resources for it. And that doesn't work, then you can't have an impact. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what their job title is. They sound almost like community managers, really, like this kind of in-house uh, knowledge transfer facilitation and almost internal research. So that they sit in a kind of group marketing function with you, presumably. Kind of. So we've recently restructured. They used to all sit under me. So it used to be I had a team of, oh, let's call it give or take 10 mm-hmm. specialists. And I'd have, you know, the the senior, senior specialists and then the very in the weeds, they can do the work specialists. But what we've actually found is with that structure, we weren't tied close enough into what the businesses were trying to achieve and what the international units were trying to achieve. So we had this disconnect of this is what we're doing in marketing. And everyone's like, okay, but this is what the business is actually focusing on. And that didn't work. So it was earlier this year. We've restructured. So now we have members that used to be in my direct report line, direct report into the head of the media unit. Some of them report direct into the head of the marketplace unit. Some of them report into me because I report into tech officially. Then I have dotted lines to media and marketplaces and the heads of audience development, the heads of marketing for those units have dotted lines into me. So I have kind of a functional steering role, but they're actually part of now these business units so they can understand what's the larger business strategies that the marketing strategies then have to support both at an international level and at the brand level, because the brands also get steered by the international units, not by the functional international teams, as strange as that sounds. Love it. I love the matrix setup that you get when you get this kind of development. And so what you're referring to as the business unit, so that that's like marketplace media, they're P&Ls, presumably? They have like a, a CEO or a general manager or, or somebody overseeing them? No. <laughs> <laughs> Our P&Ls sit with the entities that the brands belong to. So the legal entities in the markets. Okay. You could have a legal entity, which is a single brand. You could mm-hmm. have a legal entity, which then owns multiple brands. Those legal entities kind of unofficially belong to one or both international units, either marketplaces or media. And then those have dedicated teams who collaborate either with the CEO or with the CMO or CPO or whoever it might be, because it's not just marketing. We have similar specialists for the other roles. And it all merges together into this. We help them drive strategy, but we're not ultimately responsible for their P&L Mm-hmm. Although sometimes we share OKRs <laughs> yeah, and we have to contribute to the group level EBITDA, which their PLs 
contribute to. So yeah. it's everybody has the same end goal, make mm-hmm. money, but the hows and the what's and the responsibilities are all very in the family. Yeah. It's in these details that some of the most interesting work happens because trying to communicate to an organization that size of what should your priorities be? What has changed this quarter versus last quarter? What is going well in the business? What's not? How do you make decisions when leadership is not in the room? All of these things, they all come together, right? Sometimes it's OKRs, sometimes it's mission statements, sometimes it's more casual communications, but somehow all those pieces kind of have to slot together. And what do you feel most on the hook for yourself? So when you're kind of personally being held accountable, is it like the areas that you've identified that you've had to drill into and be kind of more personally involved with? Or are you more kind of portfolio, like is the whole juggernaut kind of going in the, in the right direction? For me, I'm split in two. And this mm-hmm. is because of very much my historical role and my love of SEO. So the unofficial side, <laughs> <laughs> this kind of SEO side, I do end up being responsible a lot of the time or leading projects that have a direct impact on technical SEO, because that's very much my background, or yeah. innovation SEO, you know, when we're trying to future-proof something. Mm-hmm. Um, those projects often fall under my direct purview, and so I'm responsible then for delivering on the project outcomes. Yep. And then you've got this unit leadership where we've aligned with the units, you know, certain channels that they're very interested in driving forward or on the media side, for example, we have a large business objective. How do we defend against GAMAM? So then we have kind of KPIs, which come out of that, which is growth in non-meta, non-Google channels. So we're looking at things like email or we're looking at things like push. And so ensuring that the contribution to monthly active users of those channels is going up at the group level, for example. Love that level of strategic. And so you would feel, uh, or you would be in some way accountable for that. You're obviously not detailed down in the weeds of the responsibility of improving the email marketing channel, but you're going to be reporting on and yeah, having to give an account of the performance of that challenge of trying to get out of the tech monopoly. My team, <laughs> the team that I functionally steer, yes. Mm-hmm. Myself personally, no. I do reporting on on a selection of very key projects. Uh, you're talking about projects where we're expecting the revenue contribution in the next 12 months to be over a million of additional, like on top revenue. Those I will do reporting on. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, it really falls to these kind of heads of the marketing channels within the units to be looking at those. Although, ironically, part of my role, because I report into the technology and data unit, is the availability of the data. So someone who reports into me does the dashboards that gives the units the information to show, are we doing well in our defense against GAMAM? Mm -hmm. So again, it's actually a nice scenario, not in terms of having to write down roles and responsibilities, which I wouldn't even bother trying to do, but it's a nice scenario because we are all having to align on and drive towards similar goals because otherwise the sheer number of informal connections breaks down. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like you say, even just keeping track of the org chart is going to be a massive job in itself. So looking the other way a bit, so kind of upwards from you and who you report into and when you have to spend time explaining to the board, presumably to other kind of groups, steering committees and so forth, 
what's really effective? When do you feel like you have to really be on your A game because you have that meeting or that other reporting interaction? I think for me, there's two regular types of steerco is, is primary mm. for us. Yep. I do go into the group executive board, but that's not that common. Mm-hmm. Uh, steerco is a very, I'll have three or four every single month. So steerco level, mostly things are going right, which is a nice position to be in. So it is, right. here's three slides. Everything's kind of on track. Here's some points we'd like to discuss, or here's something we need your, your sign off on because we want to change the vision moving forward. And that works nice. The ones that I'm a bit nervous beforehand, the ones I actually prepare for, is when we're starting a new innovation project. Because a lot of why I stay with Ringgear is because I get to play with technologies and ideas and things I simply wouldn't get the buy-in to do in another company or the time to do all the resources to do. But Because you're talking about things that you can't buy in the market, haven't been done before, are, you know, some crazy Jess idea that nobody else thinks about, which a fair lot of them do fall into that bucket. You need to be able to take this very technical concept and translate it into a business case. And that's not an easy thing to do. And those steer codes or those projects are the ones that I do a lot of prep for. Yeah, so let's let's drill into that because this is the this is the stuff. This is why I'm doing this podcast is, is getting into those bits of kind of nitty gritty where it's like every organization is curious and unique, but there's like through lines or, or threads that you can tease out that's like that works in this organization and it could work over here. And I think people, hopefully, who are listening, can get some of those insights about how to do some of those hard things. So I'd love you to be as specific as possible, but you can you can be as specific as you as you are able to, or talk about actual projects where you can, but. Think about one of those business cases you've had to make where you're talking about a substantial investment of time, focus, energy, obviously money. And you've got this kind of, as you put it, crazy jazz idea, right? So, some kind of technical thing that you want to do. And you're saying that this is going to be great for the business. How are you joining those dots? Where are you relying on spreadsheets and numbers and forecasts and, and those kinds of things? Where are you relying on storytelling? How do you tease those threads out and pull them together? It depends on what the project is. So I'll give you two examples. We've got a project which is very much coming from my SEO background because when we're looking at what can we do to step our websites at the group level up to the next level. So here you can't focus on let's go and optimize title tags. It's just it doesn't work that way. So we need something that can benefit every single one of our businesses. So for that, we're working right now on a crawling tool. Because mm-hmm. what our businesses don't know, what there is not a single tool out there that can prove or measure for you is the time from when your article is published or significantly updated to the time that Google comes and crawls it as reported by your log files. And I have to do this across 140 businesses. But knowing that, being able to see, okay, for this brand, your time from publication to crawling and and thus indexing in most cases Mm -hmm. is under an hour. Well, the same business model in another market takes six hours. We can start to get a real feel for why do you have a difference in discover performance? 
why do you have such a difference in Google News performance? Because these are the channels where it matters. Time to market really does. Or we're looking at on the classified side, we have aggregators. You know, we go out, we scrape all the other websites, we pull their listings in essentially without permission, but it's all legal. And if we get indexed first, guess who gets to show when someone You're then the authoritative version, index. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even though we're not the original publisher, it's speed and time to market. So what I don't do when I'm pitching these sort of ideas to Steercos or the, the powers that be, the powers that will give me the money, I don't sit there and talk about crawl efficacy and Googlebot and <laughs> these sorts of things. It's, it's not going to resonate with them. I really talk about what the business problem is. I say, we've measured it with a proof of concept tool and it's taking six hours. That's a good case for some of the brands. The worst one I found was it was actually five and a half days. When I could say it takes five and a half days from when the person lists the job on our platform for it to be able to show in Google. And by that time, that advertisers already passed their period of expectation when they think they should get their applicants back, all of a sudden, now you have buy-in for your tool. Yep. So that's the one side. That's very much the technical SEO side, making sure you translate it away from your tech SEO speak into here's the actual business problem that we're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. And just, just on that one, just for a second, so, and you've got to that business pain and it sounds like, you know, even a non-SEO can understand the pain that's causing the business when, yeah, whether it's a job not getting listed or you, you scrape a property listing from somewhere and aggregate it, but your version is not getting indexed fast enough, which means somebody else is the authoritative version or whatever. How do you find going from there to denominating things in euros or currency of choice in terms of the quantifying the benefit of fixing this? Because normally the costs are more easy to quantify, I guess. You're right? You can estimate how much you need, what your ask is, but how are you quantifying the upside that's going to come with this? Or how do you think about that? So on the media side, it's actually easier because our media businesses, we have an internally reported metric, which is revenue per session. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I can say, okay, if we get indexed faster, then we're going to be able to generate this many more sessions that with this revenue per session equals this for this brand in additional uplift from the tool. So that's nice and relatively simple. Mm -hmm. And believed and believable through the business. Everybody kind of trusts that revenue per session number. The joy of it is the revenue per session number comes from finance. So if it's wrong, that's not on me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's very much, I have to give kudos to our finance team that they can provide those numbers. So it's not something that, I wouldn't be able to leverage that if we didn't have a competent finance team who's gone to the level of, okay, we're, we're going to get into what is actually a KPI for our business and making sure we're yep. reporting that KPI. On the classified side, it's a little bit more challenging because if you just talk about leads or applications for jobs, like inherently, that's not valuable. You have to talk about qualified leads and a minimum number of qualified leads until the advertiser is happy. Because I don't want you to send me one lead. I don't want you to send me a hundred leads. I want you to Mm -hmm. send me, you know, 10 qualified people that I can then cull down to whatever I want. So there it's a bit more 
difficult and you have to go into are you talking b2b or b2c and what kpis are you trying to move and trying to take it away from organic sessions because for me that will never really stir a group executive board or a steer co you can't talk about organic sessions you have to talk about the outcome of those sessions and mm-hmm. how that outcome then ties into group revenue or retaining paying customers that's my SEO centric one. Then we've got another tool where we're focusing on essentially distributing our content. So it's it's one of the strategic tools that we're building to defend against Gamma, among other things, because it does distribute to Google and Facebook for obvious reasons. They're excellent yep. distribution portals. But there the challenges are you have an idea, you have a marketing vision. This is the tool that we could build and this is what it could do but you're never going to be able to build that thing alone. So all of a sudden you're pulling in, you have to pull in tech, obvious reasons. You're pulling in product because you always want them to be making it nice and rounded. Um, We're pulling in our data science team because we need algorithms to make this work better than whatever you could buy out on the market and customize it for our needs, not just have a general distribution thing. That's not going to get me where I need to be best in class. So you're you're pulling these people on board, you're getting them excited about the project, which is excellent, but they bring on all of their own ideas. So it becomes very much a project management skill and, and balancing what you want versus what they want versus what the businesses want. That's a job in and of itself. Yeah, I can imagine. This is all, all fascinating. I'm going to pivot a little bit. Let's talk career stuff more for a second. So you, you talked about a decade and what keeps you engaged and, and excited and still working there. But going all the way from the like the SEO shop floor to group CMO, I'm sure what some of listeners are going to be interested in is what that career path looks like. I mean, you've only done it once. So uh, you know, we're, we're all just like sample size of one versions. But what's worked for you? What do you look back on and you think that was a pivotal moment in my career or, or I would encourage other people to think in a particular way? I would love to sit here and say like, I had a 10-year plan and it was, <laughs> the reality is anybody who tells you, I set out to become, you know, whatever position they are in now in executive leadership. The reason you get there is one of two things. Either it's serendipity, and then you're looking back and telling yourself a story of clearly because I made this decision, I got there. No, you were just in the right place at the right time, half the time. Mm -hmm. And if it's not serendipity, then it's nepotism. (laughs) And For me, it was very much serendipity. I got the role that I have because a friend knew it was being advertised. It wasn't even being advertised publicly. And she just went, oh, you might like this job. And I came into the company at the right time. It's before there was a strong presence of the international units. They're they're just starting out. I'm still in my 20s. Like No one's going to be (laughs) listening to an early 20s something when it, Mm -hmm. it comes to strategy. And my boss at the time really understands people. And I think he saw in me that I'm a type of person that I have a, what do they call it? A driver personality. I'm just going to do what has to be done and just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And that means I don't need someone kind of overlording me. If I have a boss who wants to know too much about what I'm doing, I feel a bit stifled and, and like, like me. just, let, yeah, just let, let me do me, my thing. Exactly. So 
I had this great opportunity in a company that was trying to establish something relatively new because we're in emerging markets at that point in time. The international units were really only focused there with a boss who was very much like, I see you know what you're doing. I'm going to let you do your thing. We catch up once a quarter. You know, once a quarter, I give him a big rundown of everything that's going well, the things that aren't going so well. And that's really the relationship for a long time. It's just, I do my thing. I, I go in the areas that interest me, but the areas that interest me are often the ones that drive the business forward because we're talking about organic. And <laughs> if you're looking at marketing and you have someone who comes in and just fixes organic as their top priority, you know, as a boss, you're generally pretty happy because I'm not the person who goes, let me go and take the quick CPC win unless I'm under business pressure. You know, then you hit the KPI. And I think that focus on the midterm and the long-term wins, that focus on scalability and how do I do this for multiple brands, it changed my way of thinking. I'd never look at a single brand and a single case. So I never really did the I'm going to optimize the title tags. Sorry for anybody who optimizes title tags. I know it can be very impactful and you should split mm -hmm. test it. But that's just never been my focus. It's always been these big, scalable, high impact projects, which sometimes didn't have the high impact, but at least there was the idea. <laughs> the ambition was there. Yeah. And when they worked, they worked. And this is what really got me to where I am because I could take a full retrofit of the information architecture. Do that as a case study on a brand, which normally like, you don't do a case study of information architecture if you only have one brand. But for me, that's what it was. I could take one of the brands where we had a bit more flexibility, do the case studies, show, hey, this has a 35% lift in organic, which is the number one traffic source. And then all of a sudden you have the buy-in to do this on the bigger brands and you prove these cases over and over. And now we're working on brands which have over 10 million monthly active users because the team has the trust and they know that we're not going to come in on these huge portals and do crazy ideas. You know, we, we mm. test it in our own ways first. And that gave me a lot of clout. And that clout is really what allowed me to move up. I'm fascinated by the story of that boss who you met once a quarter. When you were just talking about it, it sounded like you had a lot of affection for that person in, like, in the sense of really respecting having been given the freedom. Yeah. Look back on that as a very positive kind of time. And yet, I don't think I've ever read a management book that suggests you meet with a direct report once a quarter. Do you think it was like <laughs> just a case of it working because it was you and you were on your path to the C-suite and, and like you were very self-driven and self-determined? Or was this boss actually effective at managing all kinds of other people? And, you know, if you'd been underperforming, it wouldn't have been a quarterly meeting. There would have been a lot more oversight than that. This is a person who I think one of his talents is people, mm -hmm. which is the exact opposite of me. I'm not good with <laughs> In the people. nicest possible way. <laughs> yeah. I'm an introvert. I don't make a good first impression most of the time. I have very strong opinions, which can sometimes rub people the wrong way, or I say something a bit wrong or a bit too blunt because I'm Australian. We're, we're quite blunt as a culture. So all of a sudden there's this person who, he was also relatively young for his position. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't this huge generational gap. It wasn't like working with some six-year-old. They don't really understand what you do. He had a passion for digital. He had a passion for 
his job and that is infectious to an extent. Mm -hmm. But I know how he managed me is different to how he managed other people. And ironically, how he managed me, I don't pass that down. (laughs) I'm very much a different manager, but I still see him today, even though he's not in my direct report line at all. Mm -hmm. He's someone who I will always have a lot of respect for and just trust. That's what it comes down to. I knew that he trusted me to do my job well, and that's why he gave me the freedom. And I trusted him to have my back. So if I fell down, I knew he would be there and pick me back up. He wouldn't sacrifice me if a project went wrong. And that really makes a difference because it's not that every single idea I've had has produced a 35% increase in organic sessions. Like, no, we've had a lot of failures, but I wasn't scared of that. I knew I could have those failures. I knew I could trip up. I knew I could be not perfect and it would be okay. That's been a recurring theme, actually, of a lot of people I've spoken to, more so that I think than any other theme of great managers they've had is a lot of the people who've made it to the levels that I'm interviewing. There's at least someone somewhere along the way who had that combination that you talked about, the trust and the having their back. And that's a really interesting kind of theme, I think, to pull out because neither of those things come naturally to a lot of people, actually. You know, it's very difficult to build the right kind of trust. And it's also, it's a rare skill to be able to defend your team's screw-ups, even when you're like, that wasn't me, I didn't mess up, there was them over there. Like the temptation to point is human. And yet I think everybody who really makes it has that manager who went to bat, who didn't do that, who protected them, gave them the room to develop and grow into those kind of areas. It's uh, quite a skill. I think it's not only managerial roles where that's important I find because I work with such a wide variety of people on a daily basis like one of the key things about my role is I don't spend most of my time with other marketers apart from my direct team it's the guys who I functionally steer they spend a lot of their time with marketing I spend my time with tech with bi with product with finance a lot (laughs) of the time I love them but more than I would like to (laughs) So you're exposed to a lot of people who don't really understand what you do. And I find marketing, for many, especially tech, often the initial relationship's not a good one. They haven't had a lot of good experiences with marketers in the past. So you're trying Mm. to undo this perception. You're kind of coming from behind. Yeah. Yeah, you are. And so I find with my colleagues where we've got this trust I know we might not see eye to eye on everything. We do actively disagree. We've had screaming fights with one another in the past because we're passionate about what we do for work. But there's an underlaying respect, an underlaying trust that the other one knows their job. And where I have that, that's where we build the best projects and have the best outcomes. And where it's, I'm going to work with you because you are that position in the company. I have to work with you. I'm still going to be respectful, but I don't believe you have my best interests or my team's best interests at heart. I do believe that if there's an opportunity, you're going to take all of the credit and not pass any else along. Like Those are the projects where it's much more challenging to make them a success. Yeah. And you've got, you've got to kind of almost structure defensively to make sure that you don't get 
taken down by the politician who's looking for yeah. that kind of thing, which, which is just energy that could be expended on making the project work better. And so I think that's a perennial challenge, especially as organizations get bigger. It's very hard to build that trust in the matrix. So another little pivot on that journey from literally hands-on in the channel to not only overseeing, but overseeing this group of brands and international and, and everything else. How have you done your learning and personal development? How have you made sure that you got better at the things that aren't the stuff that you already knew? That you know, they can stay on top of SEO is fine. Like you know, kind of, I understand how to do that. You knew how to do that. How have you learned the other stuff? A combination of necessity. With email, for example, we wanted to get a group level email solution because then obviously you can buy it, scale, it's cheaper for everyone, you can transfer strategies. It's a no-brainer for a company to have a group level solution. This is something that I wanted to put in place and I, I did put in place really early. But at that point in time, I was not an email specialist by any chance. You've received some emails. <laughs> yeah could code in HTML, but I thought that email HTML was the same as web HTML, like that level of, I know, email. So we bought this group level tool and I said, okay, I'm going to acknowledge that I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm going to hire a project manager to work with the developers to roll it out. So we spent too much money on a project manager. And this is one of my failures. Project went completely out of scope, way over timelines. It wasn't implemented. The developers were all really angry. It was just an absolute mess. And so I had to actually learn this tool to figure out where we were going wrong. So it wasn't, I sat down one day and said, hmm, let me go and become an email marketing specialist. It was, oh God. <laughs> I'm going to get my ass handed to me on a platter if I don't fix this. And so I learned everything there is to know about our group email tool solution. And from that, I can easily now keep up with what the specialists are doing and help steer them in, okay, you might want to test this, you might want to test that. And then for me, because you've got that, it's not just the base grounding. You do have a deep understanding, albeit for me, just of this one tool. You can follow along with all of their tests. And what we do as a company, and I think this is one of the strengths of my team, is we do not just release the test, look at the data, go, oh, yeah, it, it's green. Good. Next. Every single test we do, I force them to write down why the metrics went the way they did. Did you actually cause it or was it just the trend and you're taking credit for it? That's way too often the outcome. And they have to go into these whys and I read through those to make sure that they've truly gone deep into it. And as I read through it, I get all of these insights. So it's you learn because you make your team do the things. And if you understand what they're writing in their marketing tech speak and you can give constructive criticism on that, you're always learning. Yeah. And that's how I stay atop all channels except SEO, where... You just geek out. Yeah, I just, I read and I listen and I test and I think a lot of it's connecting dots because you think things through deeply at 3 a.m. in the morning when your daughter won't sleep. <laughs> but also you're, you're synthesizing this stuff. This stuff is coming from, from all these different markets, emerging markets, different places, different brands. There's a huge amount of input there that I think you shouldn't underweight in that, like having access to all of that bubbling around in your subconscious because you read all of these reports, that lets you do some of that first principles thinking as well. 
even if it does unfortunately come to you in the middle of the night sometimes. I'm also curious on the management skills, leadership skills, all of the kind of the stuff that goes around that. I mean, you described yourself as not a good people person. I've always loved speaking to you, I think partly because of that bluntness and forthrightness and, and all the rest of it. I suspect, although I don't know, that there's probably something similar in your team. I bet you're probably your harshest critic in some of those areas and people who report to you will be like, Jess will tell you that she doesn't do this well, but actually she does it really well in her own way. But have you done any of that deliberately? Have you said, here's a gap in my skill set, I want a coach or I want a mentor or I want to just focus on this and learn about it? How have you thought about that side of personal development? It goes through phases. So this good boss that I was talking about earlier, about four years in working together, he was about to promote me. I didn't know at the time. And he just came up and he said, you're going to St. Gallen and you're taking a leadership for talent short course. And at the time I was like, what have I done? (laughs) Have I I messed up? Like I didn't really have the context, but I went and I did this course and I really got a lot of value out of it. It was a lot of uh, everything you'd read in the leadership books, just in, you know, three day short course. And I came out of it so invigorated. I was like, yes, I'm going to implement all of this. I'm going to do all of it. I'm going to be the best leader that there ever was. And then six months down the track, of course, I hadn't because you have an actual job to do. And that's a full-time job. And at that point in time, my 40-hour work week was in reality a 70-hour work week. So I didn't have time for any of it. And I have that every single time I read one of those leadership books. I read it like, oh, I I love it. I want to do that. I want to implement it. I'm going to spend more time listening to my team, less time talking myself about what I think they should do, let them do more grassroots, all of these things that you read that sound beautiful, but that doesn't work for me. So I find that my leadership style, it very much is what it is. It's not that it doesn't grow and change over time. It just doesn't go through these, you know, I read it and then there's a fundamental change. And people who come into my team do one of two things. They come in and they stay for years or they come in and they leave within six months and there's <laughs> not really anything in between. So it's good for me overall because I do get this kind of core team who really focuses on long-term strategy because as far as I know, they're all planning to be there for the next few years and people leave because they want to change career paths is very common. Like they don't want to be a marketer anymore, which full respect for that, because I make sure, and this is one thing that I did get from my boss is he took care of me. He gave me a career path to move up. And I want to make sure that I give that down to the people in my team. They need to know like there is a next step for them to go to. They can take on more roles and responsibilities, and that will be rewarded with additional salary when they deliver on it. So, you know, you've got these fundamentals of retention that I believe shouldn't be fundamentals and that I try in so much as the company policies and the budgets that I'm given allow me to really live that through. But you you do get people who they come in and it's the wrong culture. It's the wrong fit. I get accused of yeah some crazy names I've been called throughout the years. But I just see it as, okay, that's not the right fit. Good, we found it out early and I move on. I've been reading a little bit recently about people who have a kind of user's manual 
for them as a manager. <laughs> you know, so you can be like, here's how you will get the best from me, and here's how you'll not get the best from me. And I've been thinking quite a lot about how we could do better jobs of, I guess, publicizing that stuff or, or like letting people see the real thing they're getting themselves in for so that you can select ideally before they even start, you know, that you can get the right people. You get the people who are going to grow and thrive in that environment and not have to take the very painful six months of finding out that actually they want to call you names and you wish they would not do that and whatever. So yeah, I, I think quite a lot about that difference between evolving our styles and showing what our style is so that people can see the real thing and they can make a, an informed decision about whether that's for them or not. I'm pretty sure there's an unofficial manual on me floating around ring gear. If anybody has that, feel free to text it to me because I would, I would love to see that. <laughs> I find it funny when I meet someone from the first time and they're like, oh, you're Jess. And you're like, so what do you already know? Who have you been talking to? What have I just what did walked you into? Like, that yeah. happens way too often to me in this company. But I think one thing we do as part of the recruitment process, and this is something I did actually get out of a, a management book, is it's not just me recruiting. If someone's coming into the team, it's me, it's someone else who will ideally be in their direct line or they work very closely with if direct line's not an option. And then we do, now we do a panel interview at the end. So in that, they get a fair view of, I'm quite upfront with, if you don't love data, you won't fit in this team. If you won't get down in the weeds and do the work, you will not fit in this team. If you don't want to do crazy things and learn thinking outside the box and fail sometimes, you won't fit in the team. I don't accept mediocre. That's not what it's about. I will cull mediocre out of the team pretty quickly. So I'm very upfront in the interview process, but I feel a lot of the time people often are more interested in just being accepted for the job and thinking what it will be. It's like getting married. Everybody wants the wedding and forgets about the marriage comes afterwards. Yeah. I think there's a bunch of different failure modes in there, isn't there? There's kind of people who go through the whole interview process with their game face on and are just trying to give the best possible projection of themselves, which is totally understandable because they're obviously in a competitive process. They want this job, you know, all the rest of it. But it does potentially lead to those failure modes where if you can't let your guard down, you can't find the real people. And no matter how much you tell them something's going to be a certain way. People are like, oh yeah, no, I, I, I like details. I like working hard. I like, you know, mm. I, I don't like mediocre either. <laughs> Whatever. Like, there are obvious right answers to all those things when they're in an interview context. And it's sometimes hard to get like, into the real, below the surface of that. So we're almost out of time. One final little pivot of, of another different direction is just pulling two strands of something that you said together. So you talked about the idea that comes to you at three o'clock in the morning when you've been woken up. And you talked about the time in your life, hopefully not every week of the 70-hour week or you know, having to burn the candle at both ends by the sounds of things. How do you make time for you? Do you manage to, I don't know, whatever floats your boat? Any hobbies? Do you keep fit? Like, How are you pulling those strands together? The pre-kids or post-kids? Because they're two very different answers. It's a journey. Uh, so my hobby is SEO. Like all of the conference speaking, a lot of time people come up after I, I speak and they're like, oh, you know, where do you, how do you do all of this? And it's like, well, I don't do it during work hours. Conference speaking, that's the hobby. Making the decks, that's the hobby. The hobby my husband hates. <laughs> <laughs> we should have him on. He's an 
excellent husband and father. I will say that about him. Like he goes above and beyond the the general standard of husbanding and fathering. I can't do what I do now without him because it's truly equal. I'm not just saying, oh, it's equal. And I do 90% of the mappy changes. Like it's actually equal. And that makes a big difference. But even with that, I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old. I don't have hobbies. It's, it's not an option right now. I know it'll come back in a few years' time. But right now, we're in, we're in that young kid's survival mode. You try to make sure you do good at your job. And any spare time you have, you're trying to ask your partner, how was your day? And then your kid wakes up, and that's the end of the conversation. So ask me again in a few years. Yeah, we'll come back to it. Previous to kids. I think because the 70-hour work week was never mandated by the company. It's something that I wanted to do, or I did because I really love my job. I don't wake up on a Monday and be like, oh, I have to go to work now. Mm. I like my work. I find it interesting. Not all of the aspects of it, obviously, but I enjoy what I do. I, I like checking in on how my tests are going and how the data is coming along and is it working or not. Probably too much because I look at it before it has statistical significance. I think that's the key. It's a trope, but love what you do, and then it's not work. Yeah, definitely true. I, and for what it's worth, my kids are a bit older, but I, I definitely remember that phase. And yeah, it can sometimes feel like, you know, work, family, self-care, exercise, friends. It's not like pick two. It's like pick one and be kind of average at it <laughs> at times. It's kind of how it felt to me. And like you have to kind of alternate between which one it is and then you kind of give a moment in time depending on what needs you most. But yeah, I mean, my, my other experience is everything is a phase at that stage. So what you go through stuff, that's how it is this week. And then you know, they need something different and uh, whatever. Mine are edging into teenage years, so it's a whole new bag of fun. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I look forward to revisiting that conversation as um, time passes. But this has been really, really fun. Thank you for being so open about it all. I definitely would love to read that unofficial manual on Jess. If you ever get your hands on, uh, on that, then please do share it because that would be amazing. I mean, yeah, God knows what my team says about me as well. But yeah, it's been really good. Thank you for your transparency, honesty, vulnerability. Really enjoyed the conversation. Let's chat some more sometime. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening today. If you have any questions about anything we discuss on the podcast, drop me a line by email at podcast at searchpilot.com or get in touch on Twitter, where I'm at Will Critchlow. This podcast is the business class lounge from Searchpilot. Searchpilot helps large websites prove the value of SEO by making SEO tests easier, faster, and more accurate. You can find out more about Searchpilot at searchpilot.com. Today's podcast was produced by Mark Cotton and hosted by me, Will Critchlow. If you enjoyed the conversation, please recommend it to a friend.